beginning at verse 25. You might have heard of this parable before, and it's on page 735 in the Red Pew Bible. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Well, good morning. Nice familiar passage for us to look at. Uh, So beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Well, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Oh Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Amen. Um, let's, uh, let's bear in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us your word. We do pray now for ourselves and for the children as well that uh, as we think about your word that your spirit would be changing our thinking and changing our hearts so that we would be people who honour you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
It was 1987 and I was on a mission team that was uh, helping a local church in Sydney uh, share the gospel with people in their suburb. And I'm going to tell you that knocking on the doors of strangers in order to talk to them about Jesus uh, is something which puts me outside of my comfort zone. And uh, so it was with fear and trembling that uh, I set out with another guy to do exactly that, to uh, walk the streets and to knock on doors. It was with trepidation that we approached one house. We uh, knocked on the screen door and there he appeared, a rather stern, gruff-looking man. And we uh, nervously introduced ourselves and told him that we were from the local church and then in an army sergeant type of voice he looked me in the eye and he said what do I have to do to get into heaven? That was a good question. That was a great question. I mean there were many other questions that he could have asked us. He could have asked us oh you know so which church is that? Is that the church on the corner? Oh yeah you know. Or he could have asked you know so what do you guys do? You know you working or studying or he could have asked sort of peripheral questions about God, but no, he went straight for the, the best question. The best question. It was a great question because really, how do, how, how do I get into heaven? That's the key issue, isn't it? Absolutely key issue. It's also a good question if you want to test someone to see if they're actually uh, a false teacher or not. And it's a very similar question to the question which was posed to Jesus in our passage today in uh, Luke chapter 10 in verse 25. Because if you have a look at that, in verse 25, it appears that people were seated around Jesus when uh, an expert in the law stood up in order to test Jesus. He had a couple of questions for Jesus. Teacher, he asked... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there it is. That's the good question, isn't it? No messing around with side issues. This, this man is straight down to business. Now, by the way, being an expert in the law didn't mean that he was an expert in Roman law, you know, by which Galilee and Judea and Samaria would have been governed by. Uh, he's a religious lawyer. He would have known the law of Moses inside out and the law of Moses by the way that's the first five books of the Old Testament uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and what's the last one folks? Deuteronomy, good one um, sometimes referred to as the Torah or the, uh, the Pentateuch um, but by the very nature of his studies uh, he would have also had a great knowledge of the rest of the Old Testament as well uh, the, the prophets and what's called the other writings Though the law of Moses was his specialty, and so he asks this question. <clears throat> now, Jesus would often answer a question by asking the question himself. And <clears throat> here he tailors his question to suit the occupation of the questioner. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, says Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, the Jews calculate that there were 613 commandments in the whole corpus, the whole body of the Mosaic law, 600 
and 13 commandments and we studied some of those uh, in our series on Exodus uh, a year or so ago and it's complex isn't it but this insightful lawyer he cuts straight to the very heart of the matter you see that in verse 27 because he answered love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Now he's right, isn't he? Uh, all of the laws are practical applications of loving God and loving your neighbour. So when we looked at the Ten Commandments, we saw that the Ten Commandments, if you could break them up into two sections about loving God, loving your neighbour, and the whole of the law, all 613 commandments, uh, is like that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked the question, which is the most important of all of the commandments? And you remember how he answered? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says, and the second one is to love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in verse 28, Jesus told the lawyer, you're spot on. You got it right. And I, we don't know how he, the lawyer necessarily felt about that. He might have felt a bit chuffed that Jesus had, you know, publicly in front of all these people had given him the tick. But then Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, that's a sort of a different things change at that point don't they because to know what the law says is one thing but to do to do the law is quite another and the other thing is what does he mean by that what does it what does jesus mean when he says to do this and you will live because to love god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength what sort of a love is that that's kind of like complete love, isn't it? That's perfect love. That's loving God with, with all that you are. Loving God perfectly. And there's a bit of an issue there, isn't there? Because if that's what you need to do in order to live eternally, then we've got some problems because we all know that we fail to love God the way that we should. And guess what? It's actually easier to love God, who is perfect and very lovable, than it is to love your imperfect neighbour. And so <clears throat> this doesn't actually offer us with very much hope because none of us have loved God the way we should. We've, we've all failed and none of us have actually loved our neighbour the way that we should as well. Uh, the lawyer thinks that he can do something to inherit eternal life as if he could be good enough to, to gain eternal life. But now, because Jesus has pointed this out to him, he now feels that in order to qualify that he has to reduce the requirements. And so in verse 29, he has a follow-up question. Who, he says is my neighbour. Who is my neighbour? Now, I, we can all be legalistic at times, can't we? <clears throat> we, we, we? You know, we can all... There are times when we all want to 
to know what is the least that I can do and still technically be obeying God's law? Or what's the least I can do and still have a clear conscience in a particular situation? That is, we, we want to limit our, the requirements so that we can fit into them in terms of our obedience. Whereas if our hearts are transformed by God's grace, then we don't want to be limiting, we want to be expansive. We want to not, not know how little I can do and still be declared to be righteous. We want to know how much I can do, how much, what more can I do to love God, what more can I do to love my neighbour. But the lawyer didn't want that. He wanted a narrow definition of neighbour so that, as Luke says, he could justify himself, so that he could say, yep, I've ticked that box. I've done that. So who is my neighbour? Well, Jesus now tells the parable, which is, well, we all know it, don't we? It's so famous that I checked up on Wikipedia and uh, Wikipedia tells me that it has even shaped our laws. Uh, In fact, there are eight countries which have enacted good Samaritan legislation, uh, including China, so it's a huge number of people, and including Australia. Now, the road to Jericho was a treacherous... From from Jericho to Jerusalem was a treacherous road. It was about um, 27 kilometres long. It was desolate... Uh, a desolate landscape and it was a <clears throat> it was a descent of about 900 metres or so. It was in fact ideal geography for bandits. And in verse 30, well we know the story don't we? A man is en route from uh, uh, Jericho to Jerusalem. When he is attacked, he's stripped, he's beaten, and he is left half dead on the side of the road. Now, have you ever come across someone who looked half dead on the side of the road? You ever thought about what you would do if you did come across it? I, I came across it a couple of years ago in the intersection of uh, <clears throat> Kennedy Drive and um, Koala Street. I was just turning the corner and there's a body just lying on the grass. And it was an interesting moment because I thought, oh, what do I do here? I didn't have my mobile phone with me. I, I thought, you know, if I stop, this could be a trick. I could be attacked by someone or whatever. And in the end, the guy was just drunk and asleep. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus talks about three men who uh, were travelling down this road and they passed by this man. The first man was a priest. And when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the road in order to avoid him. Now, why would he do that? Well, there's a couple of thoughts here. One is that he might have been trying to avoid uh, ceremonial uncleanness because if he went and approached the man and if he touched the man, if it turned out the man was dead, then he would be ceremonially unclean and he would be unable to serve at the temple. Uh, So that's one possibility. Other possibilities, he might have just not cared or he might have been in a hurry and he's just zoomed past the guy. Same deal with the second man. Um, Jesus describes him as a Levite. So he's not a priest. He's not a priest. 
but he does belong to the priestly tribe. So just uh, the difference there is that remember that all of the priests were descendants of, of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, and Aaron and Moses were from the, uh, the tribe of Levi. So what that means is that um, uh, all priests are Levites, but most Levites are not priests. Uh, in Numbers chapter 3, uh, we're told that the, the priests, uh, the descendants of Aaron, they had the priestly role in the, in the tabernacle, uh, the sanctuary. But the other Levites, they were not given priestly roles, but they were given other roles of serving uh, within, the, uh, uh, within the sanctuary and later the temple. And so the bottom line here is that the second man, he too is of the, uh, if I can put it this way, the religious class. But like the priest, he too gives the injured man a wide berth. And then comes the third man. And we can imagine Jesus' as hearers listening to this story. He's really drawn them in. And uh, they're thinking, well, we've had the first man, we've had the second man, the third man, here comes the punchline. Uh, two religious leaders, the third traveller, well, he's got to be the good guy and uh, he's going to be a layman, an ordinary Jewish man. So this is going to be a parable about laymen, a good layman shaming the ungodly clergy or something like that. But the punchline is far more scandalous. The third man is a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. The Samaritans were the, the descendants of the Israelites belonging to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom who remained behind after the Assyrians had invaded and taken the, uh, the elite class uh, and deported them, exiled them into Assyria and then had brought other deportees from other nations whom they'd conquered and resettled them uh, into the land where over time they intermarried with the uh, Israelites that had remained behind and they uh, formed, a, they, they were a, a mixed uh, race of people uh, and we, we, we read something about them say when we're looking at the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah when they were trying to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile uh, where they were opposed the Jews were opposed by their neighbours and the neighbours would have been the, uh, uh, the, the forerunners to these Samaritans so they were racially mixed, but because of their Israelite, semi-Israelite background, they did believe in the, in the law of Moses. Uh, there is a thing which is called the Samaritan Pentateuch, but their religion was somewhat different. And indeed, one of the key differences was that they worshipped at a different place. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than uh, in Jerusalem at the temple. And so they were looked down upon by the Jews. Yet this Samaritan man was not concerned about ritual purity. 
he was not even thinking, what is the least that I can do for this man so as to relieve my conscience? But rather, he was thinking, what is the most I could do? What is the most I can possibly do? Uh, in verse 34, he, uh, he applied first aid. Uh, then he put the man on, on the back of his donkey, meaning that he himself had to walk. And he took him to an inn and he nursed him at the inn. And then in verse 35, he himself had to, to leave. And so he left the man there with the innkeeper, giving the innkeeper two denarii uh, to cover expenses. Now, that was actually a lot of money. These were not um, copper coins or bronze coins. These were silver coins and uh, the scholars tell us that, uh, that two denarii at that time would have been sufficient to pay for somewhere between three to eight weeks of lodging at, at, a, at a typical inn. So this guy has actually been very generous. He said this, the man he knows will need to be there for a while and he's covered the costs, but if that was not enough, the Samaritan tells the innkeeper that if uh, costs are more than that, he says, charge it to my account. And when I come by the next time, I'll um, settle the bill. Now, the lawyer had asked Jesus two questions. He'd start off by asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what we see here is that the parable is not the answer to that question. Uh, people think that it is. People think that if I'm a good Samaritan, if I go out and help some people, if I do a few good deeds like that, then I will get to heaven. But no, the parable actually answers the question, who is my neighbour? And then Jesus kind of changes the question and he asks the question, who was a neighbour to that man? That is, he the question for us is, who am I a neighbour to? And the answer to Jesus' question is both shocking and extravagant. Shocking because Jews and Samaritans were not good neighbours. This was like if you could put it into a current context, you know, and the comparison breaks down, but at any point, think about this. Think about uh, if there was a... Um, an Israeli soldier uh, and he's, he's injured and he's on the West Bank and uh, he's injured but the, the person who uh, comes and helps him is a stone-throwing Palestinian youth. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're enemies. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here. We, we miss the point because we, we don't understand the, the tension that existed between these two groups of people. And secondly, it's extravagant because the way that the Samaritan cared was not based on minimum requirement, it was not based on legalism, it was not based on just trying to satisfy his own conscience. It was actually based on genuine mercy, extravagant mercy, the kind of mercy that God has towards us uh, in the sending of his own son Jesus to die for us. So it's, it's, uh, it's shocking, it's extravagant, 
And in verse 37, Jesus tells the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Now that's brilliant. It's brilliant because in one parable, Jesus shows us two things. First of all, in case you missed it, he's actually showing us that we need a saviour. The lawyer thought that uh, loving God and loving his neighbour was the way to eternal life. But he hadn't grasped just how expansive uh, loving God is and what it means to love your neighbour. He hasn't realised that his neighbour is not just the person next door, but it could even include his enemy. He hadn't realised that. So Jesus is showing, he's exposing here our need for a saviour. But secondly... Even though loving God and loving our neighbour are not the way to achieve eternal life, they are actually the way of eternal life. They are the way of life that uh, uh, eternal life uh, expresses. That is the life that goes on forever and ever. Because Jesus has died for us, so that we can inherit eternal life as a gift, we will now want to truly love God and truly love our neighbour. Uh, until we, until the, 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 that, that great day when Jesus comes again, we will be imperfect in the way we do that. We rest on the forgiveness of our Saviour, but actually if we're actually people who are living for eternity, then we will have a heart desire in response to the gospel to want to love God and to love our neighbour, not in a legalistic fashion, but out of mercy, grace and gratitude for what God has done for us. When I think of the, uh, the person who was injured on the, on the road and how that person was cared for, I think if one of the people whom I love, my wife or my son or my daughter, was injured on the road like that, how would I want someone to care for them? How would I care for them myself? Well, it would be uh, boundless, wouldn't it? It would be limitless, the way that we would care for those we love. The priest and the Levite uh, would have appeared to be people who love God by external appearances, but they didn't really love their neighbour. And it leads into the next incident which Luke records for us. Uh, In verses 38 to 41, Jesus is now at the home of some of his friends, uh, Martha and her sister Mary, and we know that also their brother was a friend of Jesus. His name was Lazarus. And here it is Martha who has a question for Jesus. And she's annoyed uh, she is, she's upset because there they are at their home and whilst she's been very, very busy in the kitchen, uh, Mary is lounging around in the lounge room uh, engrossing conversation with Jesus. Now I thought in preparing this sermon, gee, I've got to be very careful what I say here. <coughs> but have a look at verse 40. Verse 40. In verse 40, 
we're told, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, it's a lovely story because it affords us a glimpse into the friendships of Jesus. Uh, here we see Martha. She's, she is annoyed and she's speaking rather frankly to her friend Jesus. Don't you care, she says. Tell her to come and help me. And then we see the warm, affectionate, calming response of Jesus towards her in verse 41, where uh, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about so many things, but only one thing is needed. Now, it's a story which uh, so many of us can relate to, especially the exasperation that we can feel when there's work to be done and others are just sitting around talking. Martha is a doer, a productive person with a high view of hospitality. And that's a good thing. Uh, she wants to love. She wants to serve her neighbour, who in this case is her friend Jesus. But on this occasion, she's got it wrong. And it led to her becoming judgmental and, and, uh, and critical. Sometimes we can get it wrong too, can't we? We can so busy ourselves with activity for God that we, we neglect our relationship with God. And it, I guess, is a particular temptation for Christians who, by personality, tend to be task-oriented, which is a great thing to be, but this can be a particular temptation if you're a task-oriented personality. On this occasion, it was Mary who had it right. Martha's food for the stomach is good, but Mary was feeding herself on food for the soul, which is much better. In her situation, this was one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. Now, this was a one-off situation and we don't know if this was reflective of their overall personalities. We don't know whether this uh, was something which happened on a regular basis with Mary and Martha. But if it was always like this, which, which sister do you believe would be truly productive for God? I think it would be uh, Mary, wouldn't it? It would be Mary. If we want to, friends, God is a bit less interested in what we do for him than he is interested in who we are, what kind of a person we are, what kind of character we are. God wants us to be transformed in our mind and in our hearts so that we would reflect his glory to those around us by the manner in which we live and by the words which we speak. And so... It is imperative that we be people who uh, sometimes are prepared to set aside the tasks that we believe need to be done in order to spend time with the Lord, to spend time in his word, uh, reading, meditating, uh, praying through his word, that it would s saturate our minds and our hearts 
that we would actually become people uh, who bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and therefore become people who are productive, produce a fruit uh, 20, 30, 100 times that which is sown as people get to know us and get to know God through us. So sometimes, well, that often does mean we need to set aside time just to be soaking ourselves in the word of God as Mary was doing here. It's true. If we love God, we must love our neighbour. And that's where the lawyer had it wrong. But to truly love our neighbour, we must first love God. And so I guess I want to ask that question, how is that going for you? Are you setting aside time each day to sit at the feet of Jesus, as it were, to feed on, on God's word? And my guess is that uh, if we're normal Christians, our, it goes up and down like that for us, doesn't it? And if you're at a low point at the moment, uh, if you haven't been reading your Bible on a regular basis, actually the thing you need to do is just open your Bible and start reading. It's dipping your toe in the water is often the hardest thing to do. But I encourage you to be doing that. So what about my door knocking? <clears throat> what do I have to do to get into heaven? That was the intimidating question that uh, confronted me from the other side of the screen door. And uh, you'd think I'd love a question like that, wouldn't you? But I actually kind of froze. And uh, when I regained my composure, I would have said something like this to this man. I would have said, well, uh, uh, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and then he rose again and Jesus has done it all and all you need to do is trust in what he's done for you and turn your life back to God. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, beautiful, you got it right, you, you're okay, come on in, I'll put on the kettle. <laughs> Friends, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to we uh, bring these matters before you. We recognise, Lord God, that uh, sometimes we can be legalistic. We, we want to say we love you, but we want to minimise what the requirements are. And Father, we thank you for the boundless mercy that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ and we pray that uh, because of that and out of gratitude we would have such a love for you that we would uh, seek to love our neighbour we would seek to love our neighbour in the way that we'd like to be loved Father we know that uh, by doing so we don't somehow do something to inherit eternal life but we know that this is the way of life the way of eternal life, the way it is that we ought to be reflecting your glory and your mercy in the gospel. So we pray for us, we pray for ourselves that we would change in the areas we need to change. And particularly also we pray, Lord God, that we'd be people who, uh, like Mary, would soak ourselves in your word, saturate ourselves so that we would actually be transformed, be changed and be the people whom you can use for great productivity for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.